Last week we began uh, a new series, and that series is titled Foundational Truths, Renewing Minds from the Enemy's Lies. And each of these weeks we're looking at a different lie that our spiritual enemy Satan wants us to believe that we must combat with the truth of God's Word. Last week the first lie we considered was the lie that getting the gospel is really not that big of a deal. And using Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we highlighted that our salvation is by God's grace alone, and that His grace not only pardons our sin, but it also empowers us to be different to be distinct from the world around us. And knowing those truths and speaking them into our lives and replacing those lies that we so prone, so are so prone to fall into guard us from living in the ditch of legalism and the ditch of license. As we unpack those truths, probably the most bleak part of Ephesians 2 were the first three verses that highlighted our spiritual condition of being spiritually dead. And we briefly looked last week at how we have an inherited sin nature. A sin nature that is ours because our representative Adam fell into sin. But what we didn't do is unpack What is it that's going on in our hearts and our souls and our minds when we choose rebellion against God? What motivates it? What's driving it? What causes us to sin? In order for us to truly understand the fallen world that we live in outside of us, but also the sinful nature within us. In order for us to help people change, but also for us to grow in holiness, we have to get under the surface of our behaviors and our actions and our words and look at what is going on in our hearts. I'm going to try to help us to do that today by highlighting a second lie that our enemy is constantly whispering in our ears. And that lie is this, the lie that this world will satisfy me. The lie that this world will satisfy me. I want to highlight four truths for you this morning from our text in Romans 1 in trying to combat that lie by getting to the heart of our rebellion, the root that causes all of our sin. The first thing I want you to consider is we see here a portrait, a picture of rebellion. If you're familiar with the letter of Romans, it's one of Paul's most famous. Many consider it to be a theological treatise of his, and yet it's really a letter written to a church. And the big argument of the whole 16 chapters of Romans is found right there in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
This whole letter, for all its complexity, for all of its beauty, is really about one thing. It's about how unrighteous people can be made righteous before God because He has sent us His righteous Son who becomes our righteousness. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, all the way through chapter 11, are going to unpack what Jesus' righteousness means for the believer. Then Romans 12 through 16 are going to describe what Jesus' transformed and righteous people are called to be. But before Paul gets to the good news of Jesus' righteousness and its implications and applications for our life, he first addresses the bad news that makes the good news necessary. And he does that in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. The, the part of Romans 1 that we just had read that we're going to unpack deals with Paul condemning all the world, in particular the Gentile world of unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, he turns the table and he says, it's not just the Gentiles, it's also God's old covenant people, Jews, who have fallen short of God's glory. That's what this whole section, Romans 1 through 3, is about. It can be summed up in that famous verse we learned as children, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the overview of Romans. But as we zoom in to this section a brief overview might be helpful before we focus our attention on a few specific verses. What we see as an overview of this section is simply this. God, who is holy, stands against our unrighteousness. And at the root of all unrighteousness is a resistance to and redefinition of the truth about God. God's existence God's power are clear in the created world that He has made, and yet we as mankind have suppressed that truth and exchanged God's glory for idols. In short, what this section tells us is God stands against and opposes us because we have rejected Him. We've rejected His truth and we're giving the honor and glory that is due to His name, not to Him, but to things that He has made. We see here a portrait of rebellion, a big picture of how the bad news fits into the gospel story. But as we zoom in on these specific verses, a second truth that we see is this. We see rebellion's fruit. Rebellion's fruit, which is this. We are given over to godlessness. We are given over to godlessness. That's what verses 24 through the end of the chapter in verse 32, highlight. You might have noticed when we heard it re read that the text is punctuated three different times with a specific phrase that should get your attention. And that phrase is, God gave them up. God gave them up. Which indicates simply this, 
that when we refuse God and we choose the world instead of Him, He will give us what we're after. We will reap, friends, what we have sown. Our seemingly short-term and satisfying sin will come with a price tag because our choices have consequence. God gave them up. To what? Well, the text shows us in verse 24, first He gives them up to the desires of their hearts, to the longings, the lusts, of their hearts. He gives them up to this, to impurity. What does that produce? Verse 26, He gives us up to dishonorable and unnatural sexual passions. He goes on, verse 28, He gives us up because we didn't see fit to acknowledge God for who He is to a debased and depraved mind. We see here that our desires, our longings are wrong. Our actions and lifestyles are wrong. Our thinking and processing is wrong so that we, at the end, verse 32, delight in and celebrate what deserves judgment and condemnation. We delight in and celebrate the things that we know are wrong. Oh friends, I hope you see that Romans 1, 18 through 32 reads like the news of the day in 2024. This is the world we live in. Self is worship. Self is worshipped. Truth is being redefined. Or people think that it's up for grabs. As if you can have your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth. That is not true. And yet that's the world we live in. Self is worshipped. Truth is being redefined. God's standards are being ignored. God's standards are being mocked. The sexual revolution of the 20th century has become increasingly godless. With the normalization of the LGBTQ movement in the 21st century, things that used to not be spoken of are now highlighted and force-fed to us all. The sanctity of marriage has been eroded in a culture of hookups and cohabitation. The family is eroding and biological gender is being denied. Image bearers are slaughtered in the womb. Friends, we live in a Romans 1 world. Greed and covetousness lead to the trampling of the vulnerable and the needy. The drug epidemic only increases as image bearers are trying to escape from the pain and brokenness of life in a fallen world. Civil disagreements no longer exist because hatred blinds the masses. Authority, respect, and honor are being rejected at all levels of society, from children towards their parents, but also from citizens towards their 
leaders. We live in a Romans 1 world. We are being discipled by a media that has ungodly worldviews and agendas that make sin seem normal and holiness seem strange. We are watching evil being invented every day. And sadly, we are living in a world that is celebrating and giving approval to the very things that our Savior came to die for. We live in a Romans 1 world. Friends, those are not political topics. Those are morality topics. Truth is being attacked and denied and suppressed and redefined and lies are discipling the world that we live in. And this Romans 1 world is, according to Paul, what mankind has asked for and what mankind deserves. It is what God gave us up to. But before we self-righteously condemn the fallen world around us, we must remember that this fallen world is within us as well. Before we start highlighting the fruit of rebellion that we see in the Greenville community, in the United States of America, and in the worldwide world, we must see that not only is the world given over to godly, godlessness, this isn't just their problem. Friends, this is our problem. Judgment must begin in the household of God. A holy and distinct and pure church loses its ability to be a prophetic witness of the gospel when they are indistinguishable from the world around them. We see the effects of our rebellion on display. But here's the question. We see the fruit of rebellion all around us, but what's the root of that rebellion? What is the root cause? What is going on in the hearts of sinners out there, but also right here in this pulpit? That leads us to our third truth, where we see not only a portrait of rebellion, not only the fruit of rebellion, but third, rebellion's root. Rebellion's root. And this is what it is. It's deception about what is delightful. It's being deceived about what is truly delightful and satisfying. That's what verses 21 through 25 highlight. And this is where we'll spend the majority of our time together this morning. Verses 18 through 20 say God's wrath, His holy wrath is revealed. Why? Because we know that God exists and we have not responded to Him in the right way. And the reason that we haven't responded is because we have believed lies about God. Truth has been suppressed. We've become futile in our thinking. Our minds have become debased. But what are the lies we've believed? What are the lies? that leads us to opposition with God and unrighteousness before God that incites His judgment. 
What does the text say? Verse 21 says, We did not honor or give God thanks that He deserves. He deserves thanks and honor and praise and worship. He deserves the praise of every tongue. The reason we're going to commission someone to go to South Sudan The reason that we want to promote missions to the far corners of the earth is because God deserves the praise of every tongue on earth. But people must hear of this God. They must hear of His character and His promises and His righteous deeds. He is worth all of our praise. But verse 21 says, instead of giving our praise to Him, we have instead given His praise and His worship to the things that He's made, to created things. This is idolatry. Idolatry is the hand-making of an image. The hand-making of an image of something that God has made. Where we then begin to direct our worship, not towards God, but towards this image. Why is that a big deal? Why is idolatry so problematic to God? Many of you, I hope, know the Ten Commandments. Why is idolatry? Why does it make the top ten? It comes in strong, really, with number one and number two. Well, here's the problem with idolatry. The problem is that there is no image that we can make that can fully represent the truth about who God is. And therefore, when we try to represent God in some way with an image, we are really misrepresenting Him and dishonoring Him and lying about Him. You know the story, the golden calf. What was Israel doing there? Well, they weren't worshiping Baal. They were actually trying to worship the Lord Yahweh, but they were trying to do it their way. They said, our God is strong. Our God has shown up and saved us. He has saved us through the plagues and the Passover and the Red Sea. And we want to worship Him because we have a God who is strong. And a golden calf, that represents strength. But here's the problem. God is strong, but He's not only strong. God is also unchangeable. He is also sovereign. He is also gracious and loving. He is all-knowing, and He is everywhere at the same time. And therefore, there is no image, whether it's a calf or anything else, that can rightly represent who God is. And therefore, they will tell lies about God. That's part of the problem with idolatry. But there's another one. Another problem is all idolatry is ultimately an attempt to control God. God is immeasurable. God is all-powerful. And that's hard for our finite minds to make sense of. We like to be in control, don't we? We like to kind of keep God in our little box. And yet, God cannot be tamed. God is incomprehensible to us. But if we can somehow mini-size God, 
If we can just get him down to something a little bit more manageable, and then if we can direct our worship towards this little mini-sized version of God, and we can offer the right sacrifices and the right worship, then we can start to believe that we can try to control God. And then if we've got our God on a leash, then we can manipulate him so that we can use his power for our purposes. That's why the Israelites kept running after false gods in the Old Testament. They were prone to do this because the pagan peoples that surrounded them, they believed in localized gods that they could control and manipulate to get what they wanted. Most of them, what they wanted most was to live tomorrow, right? They wanted to survive. But what do you need to survive? You need a harvest. You need rain. You need those things or you're not going to be able to eat. So who do they worship? Well, Baal, the god of thunder. They believe that if they just entertained him enough below, if they just worshipped him and appeased him below, that he would act on their behalf and send the rain. So Israel, when they were fighting survival, when they were struggling to believe in the promises of God and stay faithful to him, when they found themselves desperate, but they looked over and they saw the pagans were prospering, they thought, we need to go get in on what they're doing. So we'll just go and participate in some of their idolatrous practices. It's not that they didn't believe God was real. It's not that they stopped believing in the Lord Yahweh, but instead they decided to just create their own religion and to mix together a little bit of Baal with a little bit of the Lord. Why? Because These false gods that are not real, it was believed they could be controlled and manipulated. Now, if you don't think that's still happening today, I've got news for you. It's not only happening in the world around us, in other world religions. Friends, it is happening here. There is a false gospel of health and wealth and prosperity that is preaching the same poison that the idolatrous Israelites were prone to believe. We are being told by TV preachers all over the world that if you just believe enough, if you just give enough, then God's going to give you whatever you want. Come and make a deal with God. People don't really want God in their life. They want the blessings of God in their life. They want the gifts of God. They want the goods He can provide. And if somehow, some way, they can say the right words and give the right amount to manipulate and control God to work for them, then they will run after that. And there are clever charlatans who are dressing up and they look like preachers and they sound like preachers and they are fooling the masses in our country and world. They are getting rich on the backs of the spiritually gullible and they're doing it by what? By encouraging their idolatry. Encouraging them to believe a false gospel that God will give you whatever you want. As we go back to our text, we see that Paul says in verse 23, mankind has exchanged the glory of God 
for idols. And then right after that first reference in verse 24 where he says God gave them up, he says this in verse 25, that God has given them up. Why? Because they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. What verse 25 is doing is it is an extensive commentary on what he just said in verse 23. He's highlighting here what is going on under the surface of idolatry. And what it is is this. It's that we are worshiping created things instead of the Creator. We are worshiping the gifts that God gives instead of worshiping the giver who gives the gifts. We are trusting that the presents God may give us are more satisfying to our souls than the presence of God Himself in our lives. That's the root lie that leads to all of our rebellion. The lie is this. That what God has made is more valuable and more worthy and more satisfying to our souls than God himself is. That is the deception about what is ultimately delightful. That is what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the garden. It is what he constantly tempted Israel with. It's what he attempted to tempt Jesus with. And it's what he tempts you and I with every day. Friends, I don't know if you know this, but God doesn't merely want us to know some facts about him. He doesn't want us to follow Him because we're supposed to out of duty, but instead God desires that we will delight in Him and love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, to love Him with all that we are. He wants us to make Him our ultimate treasure. God doesn't just want our hands of service. He wants our hearts of worship. He wants us to trust Him as the ultimate treasure that we're willing to sell everything else for in order to gain the prize. He doesn't want us to just A, B, C, admit, believe, and confess, but He wants us to A, B, C, D, admit, believe, confess, and delight in Him. He doesn't want us to be using Him as a means to an end, but to recognize that he is the end. He is the goal. He is the prize. He is the gospel. He is the treasure. He is the ultimate delight. It is in his presence that the fullness of joy is found. And anything in this life is a paltry substitute compared to the joy of being with and having God. If you've got God, you have everything that you could ever want or ever need. But when we put our ultimate trust in the things God has made, friends, you will never be satisfied. You will never be satisfied, but our enemy Satan doesn't want us to know that. 
He doesn't want us to believe that. He is constantly questioning the Word of God, the character of God, the promises of God. He paints a picture of God as a big, giant killjoy who's trying to make sure nobody has fun anywhere in the world. And he whispers that lie. And when he does it, and when we watch the world around us, running after the lies. And when we find ourselves running after the lies, we start to seek our joy and hope and peace and rest and satisfaction in created things. And those created things, we turn into little gods, little rival gods, little god substitutes. And when we do that, we are in danger. Friends, did you know that worship does not start at 10.30 in this building and then stop whenever I get done preaching? You are always worshiping. Every second of every day, you are giving your allegiance and devotion to something. You might not call it worship, but that's what it is. We are created by God to be worshipers. Even the most hard-hearted atheist is a worshiper of something, usually themselves. We are always worshiping. The question is, what are we worshiping? Some look to physical pleasure, food, drink, sleep, or sex to satisfy. Some are looking to money, possessions, estates, and land If I have those things, that will satisfy my soul. Some look to education. If I have the right amount of degrees on the wall, then I'll have the right amount of intellectual acclaim and I'll garner respect and that will satisfy my soul. Some look to their jobs and their work and the success of accomplishments and finishing projects. Then I will have significance. Then my heart will truly be happy and overcome with joy. Some trust in power, being able to control what's coming, being able to control their lives and be independent. If only I can be in charge, then I will be satisfied. Some look for comfort to satisfy or for health and safety. As long as I feel good, as long as there's nothing wrong with my body, as long as there's no threat on my horizon, then I will be happy and satisfied. Some look to marriage or their children trying to have the perfect marriage, the perfect family that you can put in photo albums and blast on social media. If I have that, that will satisfy my soul. Some look to companionship. Friendship, having the right peer group. If only I'm not lonely, and if only I'm loved and accepted, then I will be satisfied. Some look to man's approval, to having the right reputation, or to gaining significance. 
to satisfy. Some look to politics and influence and their lasting legacy to satisfy. Many turn to technology and media and entertainment. That will satisfy my soul. If only I can escape the hardship of life and go into this sitcom or this story, or if only I can be the most up-to-date technologically, then I will be satisfied. Then I will find validation and significance. Some look to being loved or being respected. That will satisfy my soul, right? Some look to traditions. As long as we maintain the status quo, then my heart will be satisfied. Some look to experiences and adventure and travel. That will satisfy my soul, right? Some look, as long as I'm present, as long as I don't miss out, as long as I'm invited and I'm where the action is, that's where it will be. And some look to isolating themselves and being away as a hermit to satisfy. Now listen. None of those things I just listed in and of themselves are evil. In fact, most of them are sweet gifts from the Lord that He wants us to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy them and give Him praise as we enjoy those things. But listen, when we turn the sweet gifts of God these created things, into God's substitutes and rival gods, we have a big problem. When we start to trust these things to satisfy our souls, when we functionally are giving our ultimate devotion to created things, you might not be bowing down to a graven image, but we are committing spiritual adultery by giving the worship that is God alone to the idols of our hearts. Friends, I hope you realize this is your problem. This is my problem. This is not like something that a few people in here are struggling with that we need to pray for. This is, like if you're breathing in here and you can hear my voice, you are battling with this even if you don't know you're battling with it. We are way more sinful than we think we are. We are. We are all idolaters who give our love and devotion and worship to created things. You might not like being told you're an idolater, but the truth will set you free. And what happens is, is when we narrow down the standards of God and we only look at these certain big public sins that everyone knows is wrong, and we say, at least I'm not doing that. We start feeling pretty good about ourselves, right? We start living over here in this gospel ditch of legalism as if we are the standard instead of God's Word being the standard. But if we look at our hearts, if we look at what we're trusting in to satisfy, what we see is that we are far more sinful than we ever dreamed, which makes God's loving grace far more marvelous than we could ever imagine. The people who love God the most are the ones who recognize how far short of His glory they fall, not only before they came to Christ, but still. When you feel that in the depths of your being, you will become a worshiper. You will become a grateful, thankful, and humble 
person. We must look at our hearts. That's what Jesus did, wasn't it? You guys read the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, don't murder. What's he say? But if you got hate in your heart towards somebody, in God's eyes, you murdered them. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you have lust in your heart, in God's eyes, you've fallen short of his glory and standard. Jesus went after the heart which made the religious upset. Because they felt they had acquired a status before God, a status of righteousness. And Jesus came in and said, God doesn't just want what people can see. He wants your heart. He wants your worship. He wants you to love him with all that you are. We all have idols. How do we find what they are? I don't have time to go read it this morning, but I want to make a reference here. James chapter 4. Verses 1 through 4, I'm going to briefly summarize it, but I want you to go read it on your own and wrestle through its implications this week. He says, if you want to know what your idols are, follow your emotions. Follow your emotional responses to people and life. He says, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this? That your passions, your desires, your longings are at war within you. There's something you want and you can't have it and therefore you're ready to fight. What is it that makes you angry and ready to fight when someone threatens it? What is it that causes you despair or worry that makes you think, I can't cope if you lose that thing? What is it that when you have it, you are on top of the world in bliss? What are your if-onlys? We all have them. You know what I'm talking about. If only I could get this, then my life would be worth living. If only I can keep this that I've gained, then my life will be satisfying. What is it in your life that you're willing to sin in order to get it, or you're willing to sin in order to keep it? Friends, the answers to those questions, those are our real day-to-day functional gods. And we all have them. And as we take that painful look into our hearts, we will find that we are far more sinful than we give ourselves credit for. The ultimate reason, friends, that we prioritize anything over God is that we believe that they are more significant and more satisfying than God himself. That's the lie Adam and Eve believed, Israel believed, the world around us is believing, and it's the lie that we are prone to believe every day. We sang a song earlier. I hope you sang it. It said, Jesus is better. More than all my sorrows, more than all my victories, more than all my comfort, more than all my riches, more than anything in the world, Jesus is better. Do you really believe it, though? Be honest. Do you really believe it? Do you really believe that Jesus is more satisfying than anything else? Friends, as we look honestly into our hearts, 
As we zoom in on the depths of our depravity, we will find ourselves in a desperate and broken state of spiritual mourning because we will recognize how half-hearted we are in our commitments and we will recognize how frequently we are committing spiritual adultery by giving our love and our passion and our life and our worship not to God but to things he has made. Friends, we live in a Romans 1 world, but we are a Romans 1 people. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that Romans 1 people have been offered a Romans 3 Savior. And that leads us to our last truth. It's found in Romans 3 verses 21 through 26. Maybe the most important section of Scripture in all the Bible. It says this right on the heels of Paul basically saying, y'all are a bunch of sinners. Jew, Gentile, everybody, a bunch of sinners, hopeless and helpless sinners, idols on your heart, denying the truth, satisfied with the world. He says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bore witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine patience and forbearance he had passed over former sins he sent Jesus to be our righteousness why because he needed to be shown to be just and righteous and holy as a God who will deal with sin the right way but also to show himself to be justifier who is gracious and merciful and loving to undeserving sinners then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. There is no place for boasting in the life of a believer. We have a righteous Redeemer, and His work has done a few things for us. We talked about them last week, but we're going to preach it every week, baby. The gospel is good news. We need to preach it to ourselves every day, every moment of our life. This righteous Redeemer, He counts us positionally righteous. That's our justification. He is our wrath-bearing sacrifice. He was our substitute. He took our hell and took our judgment and paid our penalty, even the penalty for the idols of our hearts that died hard and then grow back with seven heads. They've been nailed to the cross. We bear them no more. 
Our sin was nailed to the cross. We are positionally righteous with God now and forever. This righteous Redeemer counts us positionally righteous, but He also creates in us practical righteousness. Jesus' work for you and the Spirit's power inside of us actually makes us into a righteous people. He gives us new hearts. He gives us new desires so that we want to know God. We want to please God. We want to worship God. We want to serve God. We want to draw near to God. If you have been saved by the justifying grace of God and born again, what will happen is that slowly but surely the sweetness of sin will lose its taste and a new hunger for righteousness will replace it. But those God-given desires have to be acted on. Nobody becomes holy without sanctified effort. You can't just put the Bible under your pillow and sleep at night and think you're going to wake up like Jesus. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. No one becomes holy without real hard work, heart-level repentance. And because most of the sin in our lives is found in our hearts and the idols that are ruling our hearts, if we will grow spiritually... If we will get out of that rut, if we will see true and life-changing transformation displayed in our life, what has to happen is we have to identify what are the idols on my heart that I am functionally believing are more satisfying than Jesus. And then when you identify them, you've got to kill them. You've got to uproot those lies you're believing in, but not just uproot the lies. You've got to replace them with truth from the Word, with righteous living. We've got to identify the idols, uproot the idols, and replace the idols. And listen to me, that is hard work. And it's not something you can go home and knock out in a few hours. This is a daily posture of repentance. A daily pursuit of holiness. Knowing who we are in Christ. Knowing that we're not saved by our pursuit of holiness. And yet knowing that the Spirit will use our sanctified effort to make us more like Jesus. Heart work is hard work. But it's the only way that we will grow. And if you're in Christ, you have the resources to do it. You have the resources of the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you, the Word of God to combat Satan's lies, and the people of God to walk arm in arm with us on this pilgrim pathway until we reach glory. A people who want to bear your burdens, who want to love you even when you're unlovable, who want to show up when you're trying to stray, who want to watch your blind spots, who want to pick you up and carry you when you don't have the strength. We have the Spirit and the Word and the people of God so we can become practically righteous. The Redeemer has come, friends. The Redeemer is our righteousness. 
but he also creates in us righteousness. The Redeemer has come. Unlike Adam and Eve, unlike Israel, unlike you and I, this Redeemer never believed the lies of Satan. He never fell for the deception about what is delightful. He sinlessly and perfectly was satisfied in the will of his Father. Jesus was the most joy-filled man who ever lived because he walked in the light and he walked in the truth and he lived for the glory of God, and yet in obedience to his Father and out of love for his people, he laid aside joyful bliss in the Father's presence to draw near to us as our Emmanuel. But he didn't just come. He came and he died. He came and he was willingly forsaken by God. Why? So that selfish idolatrous sinners like you and I could be redeemed and forgiven and adopted and empowered and one day glorified. Friends, the Redeemer has come. The question is, will you worship Him today? Will you run to Him in faith today? Will you pour out your hearts in repentance to Him today? The good news of the gospel is that wretches can be made righteous. Rebels can be redeemed. The guilty can become godly. The shamed can finally be satisfied. The hell-bound can have peace. The striving can finally find rest. And the prodigal can come home to a good and gracious Father who loves them, but only through Jesus the righteous Redeemer, the Savior of sinners. Friends, the gospel breaks us down, but then the gospel builds us up. The gospel reminds us on our own we are helpless and hopeless, but with Jesus we are unstoppable. The gospel reminds us that we deserve condemnation, but that in Jesus we have a new father, a new name, a new status, a new eternal future and that we will never be forsaken. Friends, whatever your need is this morning, whether it's repentance and faith for the first time because you've never treasured Jesus or whether it's repentance and faith as you preach the gospel to yourself and renew and revive that passion and cry out for God to work in your heart, run to Jesus. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your life. He knows your future. And he died for your sins. Run to Jesus. Magnify Jesus. Jesus is better. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Oh Lord, we thank you that you save us. We thank you that in undeserving love you sent your Son. We thank you that you have the power through the Spirit, God, to bring life to our dead hearts, to bring sight to our blind eyes. God, your Word is like a sharp sword. It pierces and divides our souls. It gets in our business. It steps on our toes. And yet that same gospel that tears and breaks us down builds us up and comforts us. 
God, my prayer this morning is that those who are afflicted will be comforted with the hope of the gospel, but that those who are comfortably living in sin will be afflicted and convicted and will run to you, the righteous God. Lord God, whatever our need, we pray right now that your Spirit will prompt us to respond to you. Help us to draw near to you, to feel you working in our hearts. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Make us like Jesus. Empower us, God, by your Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.